Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Ilana Kershan, in memory of Rabbi Gershon Schwartz, author of Swimming in the Sea of the Talmud, an accessible and engaging introduction to Talmud study. My name is Ilana Kershan, and I am a teacher and translator of Jewish texts, as well as the author of a memoir about studying Talmud called If All the Seas Were Ink. I came to the study of Mishnah through my study of Talmud, which I took on during a difficult period in my life when I was having trouble figuring out a way forward. A friend suggested to me that I start Daf Yomi, an international program to complete the entire Babylonian Talmud in seven and a half years at the rate of one page a day. I thought about how moving forwards is about putting one foot in front of the other or turning page after page, and I realized that if every day I turned another page, eventually a new chapter would have to begin. And it did. My seven and a half years of Talmud study unfolded against a backdrop of divorce, depression, dating, marriage, pregnancy, and motherhood, all of which I chronicle in my memoir. I try to show in my book how the study of Talmud has taught me about the power of learning to make the world endlessly interesting. We Jews are fortunate to be heirs to a vast, rich, and infinite textual heritage, and since there is always more to learn, there is always a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I dedicate this podcast in memory of my uncle, Rabbi Gershon Schwartz, who also wrote his own guided tour of the Talmud, Swimming in the Sea of the Talmud, and whose writing about Jewish texts and whose model of commitment to learning and to family continue to inspire me. So let's begin. Today we're going to learn about Masechet Nedarim, which is about vows. It appears in Seder Nashim, the order of the Mishnah dealing with women, because the section of the Torah that deals most extensively with vows, Bemidbar chapter 30, focuses primarily on vows made by women and when and in what cases a husband may annul his wife's vows. In this vein, Maimonides writes in his introduction to the commentary on the Mishnah that Masechet Nidarim follows Masechet Tubot, the tractate dealing with marriage, because, he writes, when the marriage is completed by the woman coming under the canopy, the husband has the right to void her vows. And so vows and women are closely associated. Now, the types of vows discussed in Masechet Nidarim differ from the types of vows discussed in the Torah. Most of the vows discussed in the Torah refer to vows of consecration, nidre hektish, whereby a person makes a voluntary sacrificial offering to the temple. The Torah also occasionally refers to individuals who take vows on the condition that something good happens to them. For instance, when Jacob awakes from his dream about the ladder with angels, he takes a vow that if God protects him on his journey, then he will give a tenth of everything he receives to God. But Masech Nidarim, in contrast, deals with vows of prohibition, nidre isar, that is, when a person vows that something will be forbidden to him or her. The way this is generally done is that a person says that something is forbidden to himself like a sacrifice, meaning that the object now effectively belongs to God. For instance, a person might say, this loaf of bread is like a sacrifice to me. These vows sometimes involve stipulations or conditions, such as, this loaf of bread is forbidden to me like a sacrifice if I eat anything today. In the ancient world, vows were an important part of a person's religious life. But vows are not mitzvot. They are not obligatory, but are taken on voluntarily. 
By means of a vow, a person binds himself or herself beyond the ways in which he or she is already bound by the Torah and by Jewish law. However, once a person makes a vow, it's a mitzvah to fulfill it. As the Torah clearly teaches in Bamidbar chapter 30, verse 3, Ish ki dor neder lashem lo yachil devaro If a man makes a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his pledge. He must carry out all that has crossed his lips. For the most part, the sages frown upon the making of such vows. They are regarded as restrictive and binding, and they add on prohibitions beyond those already stipulated in the Torah. After all, aren't Jews already limited enough in what they can eat and with whom they can sleep? Why take on additional strictures? The rabbis quote from the book of Kohelet, Tova Sherlotidor, Mishatidor Velota Shalem, better not to vow than to vow and not fulfill it. They warn that every time a person takes a vow, the notebook recording all of his deeds is opened in heaven, and God reevaluates his fate more critically. The rabbis seem to be suggesting that it is far better to live by the Torah's laws and leave it at that. Still, vows were quite common in Mishnaic and Talmudic times. Because of the frequency with which people made vows and the tremendous seriousness attached to a vow, a whole series of terms developed to substitute for vows. Instead of saying that something is forbidden like a sacrifice, a korban, a person might say konam or konach or konas, which are known in the Mishnah as kinuim, or substitute terms for vows, sort of like the way we might say ogash instead of ogad. Presumably because these substitute terms became so common, the Mishnah teaches in the first chapter of Nidarim that all of these terms for vows also count as vows, and they are just as valid and just as binding. In order for a vow to be binding, several conditions have to apply. First, the individual has to intend to take that vow. This means that if a person takes a vow half-heartedly, or takes a vow that's obviously exaggerated, or takes a vow in a moment of anger, or takes a vow under mistaken pretenses, that vow is invalid. The third chapter of Nidarim gives several examples of these types of vows, such as, This food is like a sacrifice to me if I did not just see a snake as large as the beam of an olive press. Konam imlora iti nachash kekorat bet habad. When obviously no snake could be that large. Or, any benefit my wife may derive from me is forbidden to me like a sacrifice because she stole my wallet. Konam ishti nehenetli sheganva et kisi, when in fact she did not steal his wallet. The Mishnah seems to recognize that people often take vows in moments of anger or tremendous agitation, and it tries to safeguard against the consequences of such utterances. A vow is also binding only if it is stated clearly and unambiguously. It has to be completely clear exactly what the person vowing is prohibiting himself from. And so much of this tractate is really about language and precision in language, what we mean when we use particular terms. The fourth and fifth chapters deal with what we are referring to when we vow that it is forbidden to derive benefit from another person. If a father is prohibited by a vow from deriving all benefit from his son, is he allowed to attend a wedding that his son is making for his grandson? The Mishnah asks. This emphasis on semantics continues into the sixth chapter, which is all about what we are referring to when we mention various food items. If a person says that meat is forbidden to him, for instance, can he still eat the sauce on the meat? Yes, says the Mishnah, because when people refer to meat, they are not referring to the sauce, but to the meat itself. Chapter 7 of Nidarim extends this discussion to 
Other items. If a person vows to prohibit himself from beds, he may still sleep on a leather mattress. If a person vows prohibiting himself entry in a particular house, he can still enter the attic of that house. If a person vows prohibiting himself all clothing, he can still wear sackcloth. This specificity of language also applies to the period of time in which the vow applies, which is the subject of the eighth chapter. If a person vows that wine is forbidden to him today, his vow applies only until it gets dark. If he vows that garlic will be prohibited to him until Shabbat, it is prohibited to him only until Friday night, because Friday night is when people generally ate garlic, says the Mishnah. Who knew, right? Part of what's so fun about this Masechet is that it offers us a real window into life in the times of the Mishnah, what people ate and drank, where they lived, what they wore, how they slept, and the ways they marked the passage of time. And finally, in order for a vow to be binding, there has to be an object on which the vow takes effect. And this is where a vow differs from an oath. With a vow, a neder, a person forbids an object to himself. This loaf of bread is forbidden to me like a sacrifice. In contrast, with an oath, a shvua, the person forbids himself to the object. I swear that I will not eat this loaf of bread. Or, to use halachic terminology, a vow is an isur chefza, it's a prohibition that applies to an object, whereas an oath is an isur gavra, it's a prohibition that applies to a person. Now, all of this language of vowing and swearing may seem foreign to our modern sensibilities. When was the last time any of us ever took a vow that something would be forbidden to us as if it were a sacrificial offering? But we're at the end of January now, the end of the season of New Year's resolutions, and the more I think about it, many New Year's resolutions are sort of like vows. They're extra prohibitions we take upon ourselves. I'm swearing off all caffeine in the new year. This is basically a neder in which caffeine becomes prohibited to us in the same way that the loaf of bread was prohibited to the anonymous vower in the Mishnah. Our contemporary diet and exercise culture have much in common with tractate nedarim. We take upon ourselves that we won't eat chocolate or gluten or that we'll go to the gym every day in the hope that making such commitments will motivate us to follow through. Of course, everyone feels noble and ambitious in January when diet books fly off the shelves and gym registration is at its highest. But what happens a few months later when the summer heat sets in and all we want to do is lie on the beach and eat ice cream? The ninth chapter of Nidarim deals with the dissolution of vows, which may be performed by a halachic authority or by a court. This does not have any explicit source in the Torah, and indeed the Mishnah in Chagiga states that the annulment of vows hovers in the air with nothing to support it. Heter Nidarim porchim ba'avir ve'en lehem almashi smochu meaning that they have no scriptural basis. But the rabbis teach that the sages may dissolve a vow by informing the person who took the vow that his vow also applies to something he had not taken into consideration when he uttered the vow. Had he known of this additional consideration, he would not have taken the vow in the first place, and therefore the vow is rendered invalid. For instance, the court may say to the person who took the vow, did you know that taking this vow would disgrace your father and mother? Or did you know that vowing not to eat for the next week would mean that you'd also have to fast on Shabbat? If the vower says that he did not realize this, then the court can abrogate the vow. However, if a person bases his vow on something which is not true, thinking it is true, 
then this is a vow made in error, and it does not require a court to abrogate it. The last Mishnah in the ninth chapter brings the example of a man who vows not to marry ugly so-and-so, referring to a particular woman. But then he realizes that she's actually beautiful. Or he vows not to marry a dark-skinned woman, but then realizes that she's in fact fair. Or he vows not to marry a tall woman and then realizes she's in fact short. Since these vows are made in error, the man may still marry her. I like this Mishnah because it reminds me that although we often have preconceived notions about who we are attracted to, I can't date anyone shorter than I am, or I can't date anyone who doesn't want to live in London, once we fall in love with someone, we often change our minds. This same Mishnah goes on to tell a story about a man who took a vow not to derive benefit from his sister's daughter, presumably because she was so ugly. It was a custom for men to marry the daughters of their sisters in the times of the Mishnah to strengthen the family ties. However, the Mishnah relates, this girl was then brought to the home of Rabbi Yishmael, who made her beautiful. Rabbi Yishmael then said to this man, Was this the one you took the vow about? He said, No! And Rabbi Yishmael released him from his vow. The Mishnah concludes with Rabbi Yishmael's lament that the daughters of Israel are beautiful, but poverty makes them ugly. Benot Yisrael naoten ela shehaaniut minavlatan. This mention of the daughters of Israel may be an attempt to link the end of the ninth chapter to the beginning of the tenth and the eleventh chapters, the final chapters in this Masechet, which deal with how a father or husband may nullify his wife's or daughter's vows. This kind of nullification differs from abrogation by the sages because the sage cancels a vow retroactively, whereas a father or husband annul vows from that point onward. A father can nullify a daughter's vows so long as she has not yet reached maturity and she is still living in his home. Once she becomes betrothed, both her husband and father must nullify her vows until she is married when her husband alone has this right. This nullification may take place only on the day that the husband or father hear the vow. And the husband can nullify only vows that affect the relationship between himself and his wife or that constitute vows of affliction, inui nefesh. For instance, the Mishnah says that if the wife vows that she won't bathe, the husband can revoke such a vow. In this case, it's both a vow that causes affliction to the woman, since now she can't bathe, and it affects her husband's relationship with her, since presumably she smells. The sages also debate whether a husband can inform his wife that all vows which you will take from now on are not binding. This may sound familiar because we recite a similar formula in the Kol Nidre prayer on the eve of Yom Kippur, where we ask for release from our vows. But Kol Nidre is not mentioned in Nidarim or anywhere else in the Mishnah, since it dates only to the 9th century, to the Gaonic period. The notion of a father or husband nullifying a daughter's vows, which comes straight out of the Torah in Bamidbar chapter 30, may seem paternalistic and off-putting, particularly in an era where many women spend a considerable portion of their adult lives living in neither their father's nor their husband's homes. But when considered as a whole, Masachet Nidarim is an important reminder that our words matter and we should choose them wisely. As someone who loves words, and especially poetry because of the tremendous density of language, poetry packs the maximum amount of meaning per square inch of text, 
I am drawn to the focus on linguistic precision and accuracy in this Masechet. But I've also enjoyed studying Masechet Nidarim because it's a reminder to be careful about what we take on and to make every effort to honor our commitments. Speaking personally, I can say that I often want to get by on less sleep and less food than I really need so that I have more time to get other things done. So I try to remind myself that the rabbis did not encourage self-denial, and they accorded tremendous seriousness to the making of vows. In one of my favorite passages of the Talmud in Nidarim, the rabbis speak about someone who vows to wake up and learn a particular biblical book or Talmudic tractate explaining that it is as if such a person has made a great vow to the God of Israel, Neder Gadol Nadar Lelohei Yisrael. And so I'll conclude with a hope that this vow will be emblematic of the types of commitments we take on, to learn more Torah, and to deepen our connection with the texts of our tradition and with God. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure to learn with all of you. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK. In collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.